Well, good morning, everyone. I want to welcome you again to Door Creek. If you're a guest here, my name's Mark, one of the pastors. Glad that you're here. We're finishing up a, a long series that started back in September in the book of Luke, chapter 22 today, 23 next week, and then on to a six-week study on some of the great themes that come out of the Proverbs. So good to be here together. I want to take you back to one of those days that I probably will never forget because it's never happened before. It's never happened since. It was a family in the church. Their daughter was in the youth group and they just wanted to just thank us. And so they had Lori and I, and I forget, but probably some of the little kids were around and they were in tow. So we went to their house after church. It was a really nice lunch and they said all kinds of nice things and they're really great people and it was all good and that would have been great. But what happened next is what made it memorable because the, the husband said, hey, Mark, let's go for a ride. And so we go for a ride and he drives into this uh, parking lot where there's a golf shop. And he says, you know what? My wife and I, as an expression of our thanks to you and appreciation, we want to get you fitted with a new set of clubs. I'm going, are you kidding me? I mean, the last time I got a set of clubs was, you know, when I was like in third grade, it was the... It was the garage sale down the road and I paid five bucks for a beat up old bag and a mixed set of clubs. So a set of clubs, are you kidding me? Fitted for me? This is awesome. Did it help my golf game? Not at all. But anyways, <laughs> it was great, right? So I'll never forget that day. I'll never forget the day that same couple came walking up the stairs of the office. I was walking down and I saw the pain etched in this woman's face the seriousness in his. I've seen that look too many times as a pastor. They're going in to meet with one of the other pastors and I found out that he'd had an affair and it didn't work out. He ended up marrying this woman in a sense traded his wife in for a newer model. And um, I'll never forget the look in her face as they walked up the stairs. And then five years later, it's a day I'll never forget. I caught up with my friend. She seemed to be doing great. She got back to school. She now had a great position. She was an administrator in the school system, a principal. And um, her kids seemed to be doing well. And so when I asked her, you know, how are you doing? I kind of thought I knew what she was going to say. And so I was completely taken back when she just opened up and just said, man, it's just really hard still. I'm going really hard still. See, I, I hadn't been through any kind of a, be, a betrayal kind of thing, so I didn't get it. If you've been through it, you go, yeah, five years, that's nothing. I, I didn't get it. But I quickly understood that it was still very fresh, and there'd be a lot of healing, and it, it was gonna be one of those things, if you've gone through it, you realize it may not be as intense as it was those early years, but it's one of those things you never quite move on from. And so, I don't know if you've been betrayed, but the feelings of betrayal are, are really deep. It's not anything that you choose. And we, we, we meet up with Jesus and his betrayal, and what we're struck with in this account is Jesus is in complete control. He is working the Father's good plan that leads through not just the cross, not just the Garden of Gethsemane, but through deep, deep wounds of one of his own disciples handing him over to the religious leaders 
to get rid of him. Betrayal. He chooses that. That's amazing. And as we see his response, not just to Judas, but to Peter, I love Peter because I relate so well to Peter. And I think a lot of us do. All the good intentions, all the, you know, all the right inclinations of just wanting to be on fire for Jesus and yet so often just missing it. It's so great to see Jesus' response to Peter, to be encouraged by the Savior that we walk with, to have some things be pointed out, to go, yeah, I don't want to be going down that path. And So grab your Bible, Luke 22. This is crazy. Guys, we're going to do 71 verses. Most pastors take like five sermons to get through this chapter. So we got lunch coming in an hour, and we'll break for lunch. <laughs> we should be done by two. Are you good? <laughs> Just messing with you. All right, so here's the, here's the skinny on chapter 71. There's two halves. The first half is all about the Passover. The focus is the upper room. So it's, it's the preparations, the celebration of the Passover, okay? Then the second half is it's the Garden of Gethsemane and the high priest Caiaphas' house where there's the rest. So there's two halves, pretty easy there. And our tack is going to be to just follow Peter through the events of chapter 22 and note how he's falling asleep. If you were here last week, the warnings were don't fall asleep. Don't, don't be led astray by a false teacher, right? Don't fall asleep. Don't let suffering drive you away. Don't let temptation lead you away and have you turn your back. And we're going to see Peter, having just been warned, dealing with these things, kind of nodding off, sometimes awake, sometimes really asleep, and then most importantly, be encouraged by Christ's response to, a, to one of his own that's failed him. It's so good news for us. All right, first one. Now the festival of unleavened bread, called the Passover, was approaching. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus, for they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give money. The other gospels tell us 30 pieces of silver. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. So the chapter begins, these first six verses, kind of an introduction, and it lets us know there's two plans that are being pursued here. There's the plan of the enemy of Satan, and he's using his minions, the religious leaders, nothing new there, and the purpose is to get rid of Jesus. Well, these guys have been after Jesus from the very beginning. Remember when we we first met Jesus in his public ministry, the first sermon that he gives back in his home synagogue, and the people are so mad about what he says about God's heart being open even to the Gentiles that they take him to the brow of the hill in Nazareth and they want to kill him to push him over. So there's nothing new with the establishment being against Jesus. This is, we get that. What's new here is, ah, Judas Iscariot one of his 12 disciples that he chose, one of the guys who's been with him for the last three and a half years, that's new. Satan's entered him, Luke says, and he's entered him for a purpose, to destroy Jesus. That's Satan's plan. Then there's Jesus' plan, which is the Father's plan. And there's nothing new here because he's been talking about it. He's been talking about it. Go back to chapter 18, verse 31. 1831, we read these words. Jesus took the 12 aside and told them, 
We are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He's talking about all the Old Testament prophecy, all the teachings about this coming Son of Man, Messiah. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. And so this was God's plan A. Peter calls it God's deliberate plan in Acts chapter 2, verse 24. Jesus is working God's good plan out to the very precise detail, all of it, for those of us who veered off from God's good plan. And it's easy to read the account of Jesus' suffering, his crucifixion, and go, well, that was messed up. That couldn't have been plan A. That must have been a deviation. And somehow Jesus got caught between the cogwheels of the Roman power and the religious establishment. And nobody expected. No, this was the plan. And what Satan and the religious leaders didn't understand is the very things that they were pursuing was the necessary path for Jesus to go down to suffer. It all led to the cross where he would die for us in our place, for our sin. So the stage is set, and we pick up the account and Pete's in this part. Then came, verse 7, the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. So I think just Peter and John, because we know Judas is looking for a, a way to hand Jesus over to the religious leaders when there's no people around, so there's not a big riot or anything, right? So it's, it's all private because he doesn't want Judas to know. That makes sense. So Peter and John go, well, where do you want us to prepare it? Like there's gonna be thousands of people here in Jerusalem. Where? They asked. He replied, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And we go, that's nice. Well, we don't understand that in Jesus' day, only women did that. So this is like an easy one. Oh, look for the guy with the clay pot on his head. He's carrying a jar of water. Men don't do that. All right, we'll look for that. That'll be easy to spot. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. All right, Passover. Passover is the 4th of July for the Israelites. It's Independence Day. It's their big celebration. They go back in Passover and remember that 10th plague when the angel of death passed over all the Israelites' house because they put their faith in God's word. They took God at his word. And when God said, sacrifice that perfect spotless lamb that's a year old after it's been in your house for four days, you take that blood and you take the branches of hyssop and you paint the doorposts of your front door. That was what they were celebrating. When the angel passed over their house, sparing their firstborn sons and all the firstborn from their flocks from the angel of death. And it was that very plague, the 10th plague, when Pharaoh said, get out of town. We don't want you here anymore. They were afraid of the, of the Israelites. They were afraid of God that they would be destroyed. And so they released them out of Egypt from 400 years of slavery. They're heading out of Egypt with the gold and the jewelry of Egypt. They walk through the Red Sea. They're heading to the promised land. They're celebrating that day, Passover. And this is the greatest feast for the Israelites. And so they would come in droves from all over the countryside. They'd come to the temple. They'd come to Jerusalem. There would be like 300,000 people there 
And so Jesus has got to, he's got to be clear about, I've got to have a place. And it's no accident that he's getting, he's going to die here over Passover. And he can't wait to celebrate Passover. And so the room set, that means there's a table set. There, that means there were benches where they would recline. So they didn't have chairs that they sit at, but benches they would recline at. That's how they ate the meal. That's how they ate their meals, all right? And now these guys' job was to find the place and then go get the necessary food for it. So all the things were in the room, the table, everything they needed for the meal, right? The dishes, the silverware, the bowls, the cups, the, the benches. They had to go get the lamb. So they got the lamb. They went to the temple to get it sacrificed. The blood was poured over the altar. They brought the lamb back. They also had the bitter herbs to remind them of the 400 years of slavery. They had the flatbed, the matzah, the unleavened bread, because they remember eating that leavened bread because when they left Egypt, they didn't have time to, to have their dough rise, and so they ate unleavened bread. So they had the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs. They had the wine. They had the fruit. They had all the necessary parts of the meal that were, that were required to celebrate the Passover. Peter and John, both wide awake, right? They're doing God's will. They're on board with Jesus. It's all good. All right, here we go. The wheels start to fall off. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So Jesus can't wait. Because he's going to connect the dots. He knows he's going to suffer. And he wants them to understand that his sufferings and what's going to happen through his sufferings has everything to do with that first Passover. He wants them to help them to know that when they celebrate Passover, it's not just a time of looking back to what God did miraculously in Egypt and miraculously delivering from Pharaoh, freeing him from slavery. But it's also an event that always was looking forward to a greater sacrifice, the true Passover lamb that would free him not just from slavery in Egypt, but from the angel of death and the slavery of sin. And he's connecting the meal to himself. Remember what the flatbread was supposed to remind him of? Of how they left Egypt in haste. Now what does he say? This bread is not that bread. This bread is my body broken for you. This cup is the new covenant sealed in my blood. The first covenant that happened with Moses on Mount Sinai where God said, I want to be your God and you said you wanted to be his people and that was sealed in the blood of animals. This is sealed in my blood. And this new covenant inaugurates a new day. Just like, here's one of the crazy things that happened in Passover. It was such a significant event that God reordered their calendar at Passover and said, this is now the first month. This is how we start our year. And Jesus say, it's a new day. It's a new day. What is this new covenant? Well, let's remember what the old covenant was. The old covenant was a relationship where God said, I'll be your God. And the people said, we'll be your people. And God said, here's the deal. You got to do my law. 
You gotta keep the law. As long as you keep the law, we're in relationship. You break the law, we're not in relationship. And they say, we're gonna do it. And they seal the deal in the blood of animals, reminding them that keeping this is a life and death matter. The history is they broke it. Look at, look at Jeremiah 31 on the screen. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors. That was conditioned on their obedience, right? Because they broke my covenant. They didn't meet the terms. Though I was a husband, though I was faithful to them, I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now think back of the Old Testament law. What was it written on? Tablets of stone, right? Remember when they broke the, the, the commandments and Moses came down and saw him worshiping and being crazy around the golden calf? He threw them down and they shattered. This isn't about law being written in stone. It's now my law, which is all about, don't get confused about how many laws were there. The law is all about loving God and loving my neighbor with all that I have, with all that I am, right? Loving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, my neighbor is myself. He's gonna write that into our heart that that's what we wanna do. And he's gonna give us the power to do that. And how does that happen? Not through our obedience, but through the obedience of Christ. He's the Passover lamb. He's the perfect Israelite that fulfilled the terms of the first covenant. And he's doing away with the others because we couldn't keep it. There is no way to have this relationship because of our rebellion. And the promise of this new covenant is forgiveness of sins relationship because of what Jesus has done. It's no longer conditioned on our obedience. It's all rooted in the mercy and grace and faithfulness of his son, the Passover lamb. And so Jesus is connecting the dots, and they have to be going, whoa, wow, wow. And if their minds won't, weren't blown at that point in the meal, then he really blows their mind with this bombshell, verse 21. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. You know, this isn't, this isn't mystery. What he's saying is, there's someone at the table. One of you guys is going to betray me. You know, that's the crazy thing about betrayal. You're never betrayed by an enemy. <coughs> betrayal does not happen from an enemy. Attacks happen from enemies. We expect that. We don't expect a friend to treat us like an enemy. This is a bombshell. And they're catching up to it. They're catching up to it. Listen to what they say. The son of man will go as it's been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Don't miss this. It's so great that they didn't say, and I'm thinking Peter, because he's always the first to speak, right? He's the first out of the boat. He's the first to build a tabernacle. He's the first to put his foot in his mouth. It's, I'm, I'm expecting Peter. Isn't it interesting that we don't read? And then Peter said, Lord, I know who. It's Judas, isn't it? Isn't it interesting that out of, I mean, this is something they get right. There's this profound humility where the disciples all know they have the capacity to do it. 
Friends, it is not a wise thing to ever think or say, I would never do that. By the grace of God, I would never do that. But I know I could fall just like that person. And these people, they all go around. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And the crazy thing is, the man who's pretending to be on with Jesus, he joins and parrots, he keeps the charade going. He says in Matthew 26, 25, the same account, Luke doesn't have these words. He said to him, surely, this is Judas, surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Oh, that was good, Judas. (laughs) And Jesus replied, you have said so. In other words, yep, it's you. My guess is, though, that, and amazingly so, that when Jesus kind of put the place cards of who sits where, I'm pretty sure Judas is right next to him. Because the, the disciples didn't get it. The other accounts say when Judas got up to leave, because he was the treasurer, they thought Jesus sent him on an errand to go buy some supplies. So isn't it interesting that he was right next to him? So Peter doesn't have a clue. The other disciples don't get it. And we have to stop before we go on to just to reflect on Judas. You can look like an insider to everyone around, but Jesus knows who we are. Judas followed Jesus for three years, but he wasn't a true follower of Jesus. Think about this. He saw all the miracles. He went on a mission trip for him. He helped serve people. But his heart wasn't with Jesus. It didn't make him a true disciple to be associated with the disciples. You need to be a disciple at a heart level, fully engaged, trusting, surrendering your will to his. And he would not. He would not. We get a picture of this, his own pride, thinking perhaps he knew better than Jesus, right before the Last Supper when that woman takes that incredibly expensive, maybe a year's worth of wages, this, this bottle of alabaster perfume, and he, she broke it, remember, and anointed his feet, and, and, and the disciples were discussing with each other how expensive it was and how they could have sold it, and Judah says, we could have sold that and given the money to the poor. Yeah, right, you would have done that. Who knows how much he was pinching out of the purse, We know he's the one who sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Maybe he thought he knew better about Jesus' plan on how to rescue Israel. Maybe he didn't like this talk of suffering. Maybe he wanted power. Maybe he wanted victory. Maybe he wanted to crush the neck of Rome right then and there. Whatever the case, he sells his soul to the devil. He gives in to temptation and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and he does so with a kiss. You taking the summer challenge? A couple of psalms every day? A proverb, so today's the 19th, Proverbs 19. Well, two days ago, we would have read some interesting things. It reminds us of uh, Judas, but in a few days, like eight days, we'll be in chapter 27 and read these words. Faithful are the words of a friend, Deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. The text tells us the rest of the story of Judas is that he had great regret. 
tried to give him back the money. They said, we're not taking that money. That's blood money. We don't want that money. This is after he'd betrayed, denied, handed him over. And so he went out with that same 30 pieces of silver. You know what he did? He bought a field and he hung himself in that field. It makes me think of the Proverbs that we read two days ago. 1713, if anyone returns evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. So you'd think Jesus' talk about suffering, his impending death, his talk about betrayal. Don't you think the disciples would be kind of wide awake to all that's going on in Jesus' life? Don't you think there would be a lot of empathy and compassion to a guy who's going through his greatest trial, all this that's going on? Don't you think you would do something besides what they do next, which Luke records as their kind of Muhammad Ali moment, where they break out in this big argument like boys in the playground, arguing over who's the greatest? Are you kidding me? We would never do that, no. We're so much more subtle. But I mean, this is amazing. Look at verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. I mean, can you hear it? I'm the great. No, I'm the greatest. Look, he took me up to the Mount of Transfiguration. Hey, I was there at his baptism. He sent me on there. This is like nuts. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. They're all about ruling and using people. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, humble. And the one who rules like the one who serves, a servant. Who is greater, the one who's at the table, the master, or the one who serves, the servant? Is it not the one who's at the table, the master? The obvious answer is, of course it is. But I am among you as one who serves, servant. What does Jesus say? I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, 45. Peter's asleep to his own pride. Peter's asleep to his Savior's need. And Jesus, knowing who he is, the Son of God who brought this whole world into existence, serves We know in John's account, he's washing the disciples' dirty feet. He serves the greatest act of service, giving his life up for us on the cross. And here's what I know. If that's the essence of greatness, you and I don't have a chance to be great in God's eyes, apart from Christ's spirit. And what the world calls great is not great in God's eyes. It's like easy It is easy to take position. It is easy to take authority and have it be self-serving. It is hard to take that which God has entrusted to us to actually use those to serve people to better them, not ourselves. The natural thing is, oh man, I'm gonna leverage this. I'm gonna ride this thing as long as I can. Greatness through the Spirit. Verse 31, Simon, Simon. Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. So sifting as wheat is a metaphor of testing, testing someone. I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me 
So let's just note it. Jesus knows Peter far better than Peter knows Peter. Jesus knows Mark better than Mark knows Mark. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. Hear me. He knows us. He knows Peter. It's significant that he had renamed Peter, Peter, the rock. But what does he call him here? Simon, Simon, Simon. Reminding him of his weakness, not of his strength. He's asleep to his own weakness, as many of us are today, thinking we're strong and we're not. Take heed, the Bible says, lest you fall. So note that Jesus is in control of what seems to be chaotically, completely out of control. Are you there? Right now in your world, everything seems crazy. Everything seems crazy. If you and I were one of the disciples around the table in the midst of all that's going on, we would be going, this is completely out of control. Jesus is in complete control. Don't forget it. Who has to ask him for permission to sift the disciples? Satan. Who? Satan. He's in complete control. He knows how many times Peter's going to deny him, and he knows when it'll happen before the rooster crows. Nonetheless, the warning's given. Peter says, I'm going to stand with you to the bitter end. You can count on me. It's money in the bank. So that ends the first half. They walk out of the upper room, across the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, verse 39. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed. Father, if you're willing to take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer, went back to disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So now Peter and the others, I mean, literally asleep, he's out cold in Jesus' greatest need. And Jesus' prayer is really simple. Father, could you take this cup, this plan, where I'm supposed to go to the cross and not just experience physical torture, but the spiritual torture of being separated from you? He, this is, think about this. How do, we, how do we understand this? God has always existed. Ah, oh, that just blew my circuits. God has always existed in this perfect, loving relationship. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. On the cross, Jesus knew when he took on our sin, he would become sin and there would be at the cross a time of separation for the first time in all of eternity and that was tearing his heart apart. God, is there a plan B? Could it be like Abraham that, that I could be faithful going all the way to the cross but could you provide a ram in the thicket so I don't have to get up on the cross? This is so relevant to people today, maybe you, you're wrestling with the exclusive claims of Christ and Christianity. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to God, the Father, but through me. And you go, how can that be? How can there be only one way? It's good to catch up with this truth. Jesus was the first one who asked that question. 
Is there really only one way? And history gives us the answer. There is one way. And we stand amazed that Jesus said, not my will, but yours be done. And he went that way. For a bunch of people who betrayed him and turned their backs on him, people who hated him like the religious leaders, made him into a, a, just a joke and an insult. The, the soldiers, he died for all of us. We stand amazed. Verse 47. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up and the man who was called Judas, one of the 12, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the son of man with a kiss? Do you get it? He knows everything. He knows exactly why Judas is there, what he's about to do. When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them, Mark tells us, it's Pete, struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Yeah, he pulled out his little dagger. And let me tell you what, he wasn't aiming for the ear. Man, that guy was going right for that guy's head. He, he, he wanted to do that guy in. I think it was a glancing blow miss and lopped off Malchus's ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. Now listen to this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priest, the officer, the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him, am I leading a rebellion that you've come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you didn't lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. There is an hour when darkness reigns. Jesus says, this is it. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Peter thinks he's wide awake to Jesus, defending Jesus. And Jesus has to say, dude, I got to suffer. This has got to happen. You're working against me. Remember, Jesus talked the first time about having to suffer and die. And Peter, Peter says, no, 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 no. And Peter had to, he, Jesus had to rebuke Peter. And it, remember what he said? Get behind me, Satan. So Peter's pretty sure he's on board because he's defending his friend to the bloody end, right? He's got it wrong. But just stop there for a moment and just put yourself, so here's all these people who hate Jesus, the religious leaders and their thugs around them, Judas, and what happens is Peter, in his fury, lops off Malchus's ear. That's what we're told his name is. And Jesus, I don't know if he picked it up off the ground. All I know is if you get your ear lopped off, it's bleeding big time, Right? Your ear's going to bleed a lot. Everybody saw it. And everybody saw Jesus take that, or I don't even know if he picked it up because Jesus could have just done new ear or he could have just gone super glue. <laughs> they saw it. And, and, and isn't it amazing? We just keep going. Because you know, when you get your heart that hard, not even a miracle will wake you up. So stop asking for miracles. Take God at his word. So what happens? They lead him away. And isn't it interesting that in meeting Judas, Peter did, uh, Jesus didn't say, hey, Judas, what are you doing here? He knows exactly why he's here. He knows exactly what he's going to do. Are you going to betray the son of man with a kiss? 
And I love that phrase. This is your hour when darkness reigns. Darkness may have the hour, but Jesus wins the day. Darkness had the hour in Chattanooga this week. Darkness had the hour in Charleston a few weeks back. Darkness has the hour in our hearts, in our city, in our nation, around the world. But Christ wins the day. He wins the day. Verse 55, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl, this is a, the word there for girl, is a really young girl, saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. Strike one. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. Strike two. But an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he's a Galilean. He's a northern. Listen to his dialect. He's a Jesus guy. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Strike three. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. What a coincidence. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Underline that. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. We're pretty sure that the Lord turned his back on Peter. We're pretty sure that's what he's done to us. He looked straight at Peter. Not with a stink eye. With compassion. And Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him before the rooster crows today you will disown me three times and he went outside and wept bitterly. So just like Jesus said, man was Peter sifted. And what was sorted in the process? What was sorted out in the process? His courage? His strength? His bravado? No. His weakness. That's what came out. His weakness. And in the midst of that, we note what Jesus didn't do. The man who lost his nerve really lost it when he saw the compassion. I am convinced that Jesus didn't give him the look that I would have given. Maybe you call it the stink eye. I call it the really? Really? I mean, it's what I said to my friend as we were driving down the road we just left our staff meeting at the restaurant. We're going back to the church in Wheaton, traveling down the road. And I see two things. This is as clear as a bell. I see a cop, and it looks like he's pulled over, and he's got a radar out. And the reason I know he must be clocking is because the school speed zone was flashing. And so I say to my friend, hey, hey, there's a cop there. It's a school speed zone. Slow down. I did my job, right? I did what you would have done. So we go through. The school zone, we're moving away from um, the school, and all of a sudden, there's lights, and there's a siren, and he gets pulled over. And the cop says, I clocked you at 25. And I, and I did the, really? I mean, he was my boss, so I had to do an internal, really. <laughs> really? And, and then it got better, because... Um, you know, he asked for the, for the ID, so he had, his, he had his driver's license, and he asked for the registration of the car, we well, couldn't find that in the glove box. 
Then he asked for the insurance card. That was expired. And uh, my, my, my friend is just like a very together person. This was really, um, you know, I was getting him frust- flustered. And so he didn't know what to say. I mean, he didn't have some key pieces. And he said, well, uh, look, I'm the pastor. I'm going, no, 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 you're not pulling that. No, don't. <laughs> really, really? So, if, I mean, Jesus, he could have done the really, really, really? I mean, what have I just been saying to you, Pete? He doesn't. He didn't then. He doesn't today. He doesn't give us the really look. He doesn't give us the stink eye. He doesn't raise the eyebrow. I am sure there was great sadness in his heart, but I know there was great compassion. And I think the look as much as the rooster In fact, it tells us it wasn't when the rooster crowed that he ran out of the courtyard. It's when Jesus looked at him that he ran out, right? That's what it says in the text. He was so undone by his compassion that he went out weeping bitterly. What a different kind of man. Indeed, a man who claimed to be God. Verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, The Son of Man. So remember, that's the messianic title from Daniel that he uses of himself. The Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? Is that what you're claiming to be, the Son of God? He said, he replied, you say that I am. Same thing he said to to Judas. Yep. Yes, it's right. That's who I am. You said it to your own lips. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. We know from the other accounts, they've been trying to bring in these eyewitnesses to collaborate together against Jesus, but they couldn't get their testimonies to collaborate. Jesus says, I'm going to make your job easy. I'm just going to let you know. I do believe, I do claim to be the son of God. Case closed for them. We're done here. That's blasphemy. This man deserves to die. We have what we need to take him to Pilate to get the authorization to do away with him forever. So what do we do with these 71 verses? Well, let's find ourselves in this story in a couple of ways and make some course corrections. The word always does that, right? It rebukes and corrects us as it teaches us. So here's some course corrections. Some of us are functioning out of fear. And we're losing our our nerve. Maybe it's, it's in the context of friendships, family members who don't know Jesus, you're the first one. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's in the, in the neighborhood, the community, that team that you do sports with, that group that you're involved with, a community group. And you're functioning out of fear. What are they going to think? What are they going to say? We've got to repent of that and say, God, I'm sorry, I've been... I've been behaving like Peter, denying that I know you. Maybe some of us are functioning out of fear, really 
Not believing that God is in control. God, forgive me. Strengthen me to believe that what's true in this story is true of my life right now. You are in the details. Maybe the course correction is the authority and position we've been given that we're actually using for our own self-interest and saying, God, I haven't ever thought about the people you want me to serve through the positions that you've given me. Change my mindset this week. Maybe it's all about this whole thing of false submission where I'm tempted to play a game that Judas was playing and I've just got to turn everything over because I'm, I'm, I'm playing a game with God. I'm giving him this but not all. And God says, hey, come on, you've got to turn from that. You cannot have me as Savior if, if I'm not Lord of your life. All of it needs to be surrendered. It doesn't mean it's all perfect, but it all needs to be placed before him. And the word says, you've got to turn from that, Mark. You've got to turn from that, friend. It's an area you go, well, uh, can we get to that later? No, now. And maybe what we got to repent of is just a false view of Christ where we really have believed the lie that Jesus, I'm sure, has given up on me. I did worse than Pete. And he's turned his back on me. He doesn't want anything to do with me. And, and we repent of that lie, of believing that lie and functioning in that kind of way that God is through with me. And so obviously I have nothing to do with God anymore. And what we do do is we turn then to the Savior, who is the Passover lamb, who loved his enemies, who loved his, his traitor, Judas, calling him friend, forgiving those who would kill him, saying, Father, forgive them, right? He loved Peter, praying for him, warning him, waking him up, confronting him, rebuking him, not turning his back on him. I love the rest of the story where the love of Jesus completely transforms this guy who's a coward at the campfire and he becomes this incredible spokesman, bold witness, standing in broad daylight in the streets of Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost and telling everybody that the, the man that they killed, crucified, is none other than the promised Messiah at the risk that those same religious leaders would do to him what they did to Jesus. And 3,000 people came to faith in Jesus Christ that day. He was transformed, emboldened by the love of Christ, by his spirit within him. We turn to a servant king who's in control of all things. Did you note there isn't a person in the story that doesn't have to get clearance from Jesus, including Mr. Rooster. <laughs> He's a king who rules over all things, complete control of all things. He knows all things. He suffered all things, which means whatever you're going through today, whatever you go through, there isn't ever a time where you can't, can say, Jesus, you probably don't get it. No, he gets it. You having, you having a hard time working through betrayal? Jesus gets betrayal. Forgiving someone who's wronged you, he gets it. Suffering injustice, he gets it. Physical suffering, torture, slander, all of it, he gets it. 
And so let the hard things in your life not only reveal your weakness and need for Christ, but let it drive you back to the Christ who suffered all things for you and me. That even in your sufferings and going to Christ, those sufferings will make you more like him. And finally, we note that his words are all true. They can be trusted. He's fulfilling all the words of the Old Testament prophets to the very details. His word was true about the man in the pot of the, on his head, right? Carrying the water. He was true about the room. He was true. His words were true about his impending death, Judas' betrayal, Peter's denial three times, the rooster crowing, the purpose of Judas' visit, and what he said about himself, he claimed to be true, the son of God. And that demands more than a footnote. Hmm, that's interesting. I'm not sure about that. No, you don't have that. You, you, you either have to accept that or reject it. He doesn't get, that demands a decision. Do I acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the son of God as he claimed to be? Is he like no other man? Is he the son of God who died on the cross in my place? Or is he just a good, no, no, no. He, he cannot be just a good teacher. He either is a son of man or he's a phony. You have to accept it or reject it. There isn't a middle ground. He calls us to decision. And by the grace of God, may his love for Peter and Judas, the religious leaders, the soldiers, drive us to him where we do that Passover thing. Not the blood of an animal, but we apply Christ's lifeblood to our hearts, believing that what he did on the cross was for me and submit everything that we are and have into his hands and say, I'm yours, I'm yours. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, use your word to teach, to correct, to rebuke, to train us, to live rightly. Remind us that you're a God who loves us, who's in complete control. Transform us with your love, your grace, like you did, Pete, into bold, courageous Christ followers. For all the times we falter and fail like Peter and the disciples, thank you for not turning your back on us. May we walk in the strength of your grace. May in the moments of weakness that we know about and experience, may they bring us to a place of strength as we live in your love and extend that to a world that desperately needs it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.